0: ATTENTION CITIZENS OF THE EMPIRE AND ALL OUTER RIM TERRITORIES THIS EPISODE CONTAINS SPOILERS I REPEAT, THIS EPISODE CONTAINS SPOILERS YOU HAVE BEEN WARNED
1: CARRY ON I'VE BEEN TURNING AWAY FROM A TRUTH I WANTED NOT TO FACE THERE IS A WOUND THAT WON'T HEAL AT THE CENTER OF THE GALAXY there is a darkness reaching like rust into, every, into everything around us. We let it grow and now it's here. It's here and it's not visiting anymore. It wants to stay. The Empire is a disease that thrives in darkness. It is never more alive than when we, we sleep.
0: This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, but it feels close like a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. Opposing pillars of Durasteel, Glass, and Ferrocrete spreading in all directions make Coruscant the cultural, political, and financial epicenter of the galaxy. It's both gleaming and ghastly, monstrous and miraculous. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But why would you want to be anywhere else when power on Coruscant means power over the farthest celestial bodies? For a millennia, power was relegated to elected officials representing the thousands of star systems of the Republic. But these few, who governed from Coruscant, became corrupted by greed and an ever-growing hunger for wealth, status, and for one Dark Lord of the Sith. Throughout the years, the saga has focused on politicians and Jedi who occupied the top echelons of influence on the city planet. But lately, we've gotten new stories about other denizens of Curaçao, from the ordinary working class to extraordinary visionaries. And together, these stories have made Curaçao an even more vibrant and daunting place to imagine than before. In recognition of this special day, May the 4th, Here are just a few of those stories from a galaxy far, far away.
2: Forever Star Wars Episode 27 The Wound at the Heart of the Galaxy It is an age of great unrest in the galaxy. Three time periods affect the lives of three individuals living on the planet Coruscant, a city of endless skyscrapers and one trillion inhabitants. The warrior, the office worker, and the scientist each face their own struggles within the gaping maw of the city planet. The warrior, forgotten by his government, is a relic of the past, haunted by memories of battle and striving for a purpose alongside the many brothers who share his face. A disgraced officer returns home to live with his controlling mother and finds himself employed as one of countless corporate drones. He longs to bring order to a galaxy that only rewards chaos. The third, a scientist once employed by the Empire, Seeks redemption in the New Republic. He hopes to atone for his misdeeds and live a life of meaning, but faces constant reminders of his past. As they navigate a sea of nameless strangers, these three must confront their demons and find a way to make a difference in a world that often feels beyond reach or control. For in the heart of the galaxy lies a wound, and there may be no way to heal it.
3: The entire galaxy believes Rampart's lies. Even the Senate. It's not right. Well, There's nothing we can do about it. Let it go. How can I? Kamino was our home. And we destroyed it. All those cities. All those people. Gone. Because of what we did. We were following orders. Oh, were we? Then, Why is Rampart covering it up, huh? I'm sorry, Slip. I can't stay silent any longer. Wait. What did you do? I sent a message to Rampart. Gave him the chance to tell the Senate the truth. Before I did it myself.
0: Referencing the destruction of Camino that we saw in Season 1 of The Bad Batch, the two clones sit in the 79 Club on Coruscant, talking about the conspiracy at the heart of this story. The clone named Slip is listening as his friend Cade confesses his guilt and anguish over what they did. There's a brilliant touch in the scene where Slip adjusts his cap slightly before going outside to pursue his friend. That little gesture will be a visual key to identifying Slip in future scenes. The Clone Wars did a great job of distinguishing the clones by giving them some kind of visual marker that set them apart from their clone brothers. It not only helped the audience keep up with who was who, but also gave the clones individual personality traits and established them as a group of individuals instead of thousands of copies of the same person. Slit's adjustment of his cap is his identifiable marker, but it's also symbolic of his unease and anxiety over being discovered. It's a nervous tick that informs the audience who Slip is, at any given time, in more ways than one. In a place as vast as Coruscant, we, the audience, feel for these clones who struggle to define themselves. Because their quest for respect and individuality is so at odds with what the Empire is planning for its own future, and theirs. And nowhere can the Nameless be forgotten as easily as on Coruscant. Kate! Kate, stop! You know what Rampart's
3: capable of. It's too dangerous. Slip, we're not bad men, but what we did was wrong. Please, I need your help. Together we can-
0: Kate is assassinated by a sniper. The obvious assumption is that the sniper is Crosshair. This would prove to be false later in the story which was a wonderful little misdirect, I must say. By keeping the sniper's identity a secret, it sets up another mystery for why a different clone would have been used to hunt down and silence anyone trying to reveal the truth about Admiral Rampart's actions on Kamino, but more on that later. The action of slip-evading the sniper by hopping into a speeder bike and dropping into speeding traffic was so expertly staged with the editing and the music that I forgot I was watching animation. I sat there and I thought, okay, Bad Batch, you have my full attention in these episodes the bad batch is addressing a plot point that has always been assumed but never explored how the empire came to conscript citizens as stormtroopers and what became of the clones and in doing so it's tackling the subject with candor and relevance it's very much a contemporary topic that reflects real world concerns of how veterans of wars are treated after they've served their country
4: after all they have sacrificed, you now wish to discard them, leave them with nothing. Is that how we repay them for their service? Is that what this empire stands for? How can we debate commissioning a new army without a plan in place to care for our current one?
0: Senator Rio Chuchi of the Pantoran Moon made several appearances in the Clone Wars series working alongside Anakin Skywalker, Padme Amidala, And Ahsoka Tano. Chuchi feels strongly about the clones because they were vital in defending her world against a separatist invasion, and much like her senatorial peer, Padme, Rio is passionate about speaking for groups which have no voice. Rio is a fierce advocate for justice and equality. When she sees how the clones are being discarded and forgotten as the Empire seeks to advance its conscription plan, she steps up for the clones in the same way the clones had been there for her people but first she must convince the clones that it's a plan that will work. The clones can't see past their roles as soldiers. They're in denial and ignoring the inevitable. They were created for one purpose, the battlefield. But the senator tries to show them that not all battles are on the battlefield, and their potential futures are as important as any fight they'd ever faced.
4: As difficult as it is to accept, your military service will come to an end. You get to choose what your lives will be. You spent years fighting for us. Let me fight for you. Tell me how to help, and I will make sure Admiral Rampart's bill meets your needs.
0: This is where I think the series is beginning to tackle more mature and prescient subject matter. The Clone Wars was largely an action-based adventure series, but it's also not too shy to address the idea of the clones being more than just action figures. As Chuchi points out earlier in her Senate speech, the clones are not droids that can simply be turned off when they're no longer needed. They have needs, and their status as war veterans entitles them to compensation for their service. As she sees it, the Empire owes them a debt. In spite of how the Empire regards them, the clones are not programmed machines. What hangs over this struggle facing the clones is our knowledge that the Empire will never reward individuality. It demands compliance and uniformity, and the clones are becoming an uncomfortable reminder that their loyalty is neither wanted. Nor respected in this new order. That never ends well for citizens who no longer serve the Empire's needs. Slip approaches Rio and confides his secret to her. She learns of the conspiracy to cover up the destruction of Camino, which was blamed on a storm, and Rio learns that Admiral Rampart is not to be trusted. She arranges a covert meeting with Bale Argana, where he essentially tells her the same about Rampart.
2: There are other whispers, if you listen closely enough. The issue of clone rights is part of a much bigger picture. These insurgencies that have arisen, their numbers are growing. And the Emperor is afraid. If systems begin to revolt as they did with the Republic, that will threaten his new empire. It's rather convenient, wouldn't you say? How a catastrophic storm destroyed the cloning facilities on Kamino, making way for the Empire's new military. Tipoca City designed to be submersible, weathered thousands of storms over the years, yet it's suddenly wiped off the map.
0: Bail Organa is talking about a false flag, an event which is conspicuous in its timing and has questionable origins, an event that serves as a distraction from what's really going on. Darth Sidious orchestrated the conflict that gave rise to the First Republic army, and now that the First Army is nearing the end of its charter, A new enemy arises and a new army is being proposed to deal with it. At this point in the story, insurgency is anything the Empire wants to say it is. Citizens asking the wrong kinds of questions of their government are seen as insurgents. So even though fighting will eventually break out later during the Galactic Civil War, at this point in history, the Empire is treating minor infractions as insurgencies and demanding a robust response to quell it. Fascism requires an enemy. Individual freedoms and civil rights are suspended in the name of order and security. When people question this suppression, they're labeled dissidents. Control must be maintained to keep the galaxy safe. And when fascism cannot find a real enemy to fight, it invents one. The empire cracks down on nonconformity with ever increasing levels of severity. Citizens will rise up against this suppression The fighting intensifies, and the Empire uses the violence as an excuse to tighten its stranglehold on the galaxy. It's a vicious cycle. At this point, Chuchi is in too deep. Her exhaustive search for the truth has put her in grave danger, and she's nearly assassinated by Rampart's sniper until a familiar face steps in to save her.
3: You're right, Senator.
4: Captain Rix? What... What is going on?
3: I was hoping you could tell me. Came to meet a clone contact of mine when I heard the blaster fire.
4: You were who Slip was meeting. He's dead. So are my guards. What happened? Slip told me about what truly happened to Camino. I wanted him to testify before the Senate.
3: Someone was sent to make sure that would never happen.
0: As the assassin's helmet is removed, the face of a clone is clearly visible, but it's not Crosshair.
4: Why would a trooper do such a thing?
3: He's not a trooper. I'm not sure what he is, but I suggest we question him somewhere more hidden. And I have just the place.
0: When the mystery clone wakes up, he doesn't sound like any clone we've met so far. Captain Rex.
3: You're fighting the wrong battle, brother. You're limited. So what does that make you? A believer.
0: The sniper bites down and activates a suicide pellet. As I was watching this for the first time, I suspected the assassin would be Crosshair, but something felt wrong about that theory. First of all, his identity was kept hidden and that didn't seem necessary if the gunman was Crosshair. When it's revealed to be just another clone it raises more questions than it answers why was a clone and not crosshair used for this mission one of the possibilities is that a clone would be able to tell other clones apart but that still doesn't explain why crosshair wasn't recruited for the task maybe this assassin represents a new kind of clone one that's been brainwashed instead of programmed as we're beginning to see in the series the inhibitor chips in the clones are not 100% reliable And they may even be breaking down because clones like Cody are beginning to question their past actions and eventually become deserters. It'll be interesting to see why this clone refers to himself as a believer and how that fits into the Empire's larger plans. When the Bad Batch arrive on Coruscant at the behest of Rex to help retrieve data that can help exonerate Slip, Rio shares a rare glimpse of the empty Senate chamber with Omega.
4: This... Is where the Senate gathers to discuss many pressing issues and legislation. Where the future of the galaxy is decided. For better or worse. Wow. Each pod belongs to the numerous representatives and delegates. Which one belongs to the clones? Clones do not have representation in the Senate, they never have. Why not? We're part of this galaxy too. There are those who view clones only as military assets, but I am working to change that, to ensure you all have the same rights as any galactic citizen. It is a battle worth fighting.
0: It's here that Omega learns the harsh truth that clones have no representation. They're not seen as worthy of it. This is a rebuke of the Empire for sure, but I'm not certain that the clones would have had representation even in the former Republic. Through persistence and danger, Senator Chucci, with the help of Clone Force 99, finds documented evidence of Admiral Rampart's destruction of Camino. Finally, the truth prevails. But justice will not be had on this day, because the Emperor is one step ahead. In a rare public appearance, the Emperor's platform carries him into the center of the Senate chamber.
2: It would appear that Senator Chucci's horrific assertions are correct. This unprovoked attack on Camino was a cowardly act by Admiral Rampart to further his own personal agenda. Guards, arrest and detain the Admiral.
5: Order! We shall have order! Many lives have been lost, but I assure you. Admiral Rampart will face the consequences for his treachery. However, he did not act alone. The fact that the clones under his command so blindly followed orders, inflicting such carnage without hesitation, gives me pause. Perhaps it is time for a change Now, more than ever, building a strong galaxy requires protection and security. Due to the nefarious actions of Admiral Rampart and the immediacy of the bill on the floor today, it is my opinion that this legislation is our future. With this momentous act, we shall usher in a new era, heralded by the Imperial Stormtrooper.
0: His Machiavellian plot takes care of both Rampart and the clones in one fell swoop. This Sith Lord is able to use his connection to the Force to see the future, and to see many things around him, and the many ways that he can advance his agenda. But even still, this is an impressive chess move, even for him. When most are helpless to fight this kind of evil, it's easy to become lost and forgotten in a city where only one person matters. This is a complete turn from the days when the galaxy was governed by many voices. In this Coruscant, one voice speaks for the galaxy, and it will seek to keep Coruscant a dark and hopeless heart of that galaxy. Cyril Karn sits alone in his tiny bedroom. Nearby, scattered on a shelf, are tiny stormtrooper figures from his collection of Imperial merchandise. Cyril stares out this window every morning at this time to catch his one glimpse of the sun as it peeks out from behind a building and then disappears behind a neighboring spire. This is the only glimpse of sunshine the city grants him on most days, days lived in the long gray shadow of the lower levels of Coruscant and encumbered with the angst of circumstances which led him to this existence. Cyril was once an officer of the law in the Morlana sector. It had been 14 years since the end of the Clone Wars and the rise of the Empire. A murder investigation led Cyril to the planet Ferrix, a working-class settlement in his sector. During a raid to apprehend suspect Cassian Andor, Cyril failed to stop an uprising within the community an uprising that caught the attention of the Sector's Imperial Overseer, and as a result of his incompetence, Cyril was fired. But as disgraceful as this termination feels, Cyril is convinced that it happened to him because he was too good at his job. See, although Cyril doesn't realize it, he's a rebel, not the kind of rebel we expect in a galaxy far, far away, but a conforming non-conformist.
5: Have you modified
3: your uniform? Perhaps slightly. Pockets piping and
0: some light tailoring. Back on Merlana One, he wasn't satisfied to wear the cheap uniform provided to him. He altered it himself so he could project a visage of an officer of impeccable caliber and distinction, an officer who cared about the finer details of authority, one who cared about order.
5: When I said bad timing, I wasn't referring to the fact that you spent all night worrying this. I meant that I am on my way this very morning to an Imperial Regional Command review, where I'll be asked to make a report about our crime rates. And the goal of that speech, should you ever be asked to deliver it, is brevity. Minimizing the time the Empire spends thinking about Preox Morlana benefits our superiors and, by extension, everyone here at the Primor Security Inspection Team, which at the moment includes you. Don't put your feet on my desk in my absence, and let's have an accident report waiting when I get back.
0: Cyril wasn't satisfied with the status quo which seemed to be the only thing his superiors cared about. So in that sense, Cyril saw himself as a maverick, a bender of rules that were not meant to be followed if they didn't contribute to the order. The Empire understood this. Cyril understood the Empire. The only place he could return after Ferex was his homeworld of Curissant. Returning to the heart of the Imperial realm should have filled Cyril with awe and wonder. But his journey to his mother's apartment felt more like an ignominious drudge. Cyril had little recourse than to return so he could live with his harshly judgmental mother, Edie. Although short in stature, she's an overbearing woman with a presence that looms over Cyril's self-image. Her voice is coarse like sandpaper. Her words slice into him with surgical precision.
1: Being a leader isn't something one just turns on and off. By the time you remember remembered to sit up straight, it's too late. You might as well wear a sign that says, I promised to disappoint you. Shame we couldn't have seen more of each other when you were flourishing. I'd have the memory to sustain me. Well, you could have come anytime you wanted. Any civilized being knows an open invitation is no invitation at all. My assumption is you have no prospects for the future.
3: I had a spare room. Could have visited any time you wanted. You know that.
1: I know what to tell me. I intuit the rest. I intuit you have no future prospects.
6: I've forgotten the precision of your predictive powers.
1: You remembered how to mock me.
0: God, how sensitive you
1: can be. Perhaps you've forgotten my question. Do you have even a single prospect before you?
0: Edie is quick to remind him of both his professional failures and her disappointments in him as a son. Cyril's expression of his own tidiness and order does not impress Edie. Any action he takes, no matter how small, is characterized as counterproductive
1: to his future. Is that what you're wearing? Yeah, it would seem so. One makes you believe the Bureau of Standards is in the market for individuals. It's a brown suit. It's your interview. Perhaps you would like to come along. Uncle Harlow's influence is not a thing to be trifled with. How am I trifling? He's done us a tremendous favor. You need to remember you're not just representing yourself today. It's a brown suit. <clears throat> the collar. What about it? It's high. You've had it raised. I had it tailored. Everything says something, Cyril. I've tried to make you understand that you resisted. What is it that you hear my caller saying? Look at me. I don't believe in myself. I am desperate for approval.
0: If Cyril does anything on his own behalf that didn't first come from his mother's advice, She's quick to strike it down and remind him of how his choices have failed or will fail if he doesn't listen to her. She endeavors to shape him into a model son, but only by her narrow definition. In many ways, Cyril would make the perfect imperial officer with his devotion to order as the Empire defines it. But Edie doesn't see this, nor does she particularly care about her son's infatuation with the Empire. She has a vision for his success, and he must abide by it, or suffer her disdain. Edie has constructed her own little imperial regime in that tiny Coruscant apartment, and she's its empress. Her love is conditional upon submission to her rules. This has likely shaped Cyril to become the man he is now, seeking perfection in austere and smothering systems of control, but doing so in his way, in his pursuit of perfection, not his mother's. It's ironic that Edie berates him for choosing to wear a high collar as an expression of insecurity. If Cyril conformed to every one of Edie's whims, he'd be a model son, but he'd also be exhibiting a need for her validation. So it's not his nonconformity that troubles her. It's the fact that he's rebelling against her wishes. Cyril still wants to conform, but it has to be conformity on his terms. Conformity for something he values— and respects. The reason the Empire is so appealing to Cyril is because it promises to bring stability to the mess his personal life has become. The Empire offers a solution to his feeling that his fate is tied to the inadequacies of others, the overbearing, hypercritical, emotional abuse of his mother, or the ineptitude of his supervisors back on Ferrix. He could be so much more if it wasn't for that individual, that Cassian Andor, who caused all of this. The Empire would surely appreciate Cyril's love of order if he could be part of it in some meaningful way. Cyril goes to his job interview wearing the suit that Edie condemned. His brown suit is in contrast to the Bureau's stark palette of greys. During the interview, Cyril gives his interviewer a glimpse into his psyche.
3: There's a rebel murderer running free because of corruption and laxity in the corporate authority. I was punished for trying to uphold the law. Do my job, maintain public safety. Two mend dead. Co workers. I believe that we have lost for a reason. I fully intend to clear my name and have my record expunged. Why don't we start that process now?
5: Probably best for everyone to just edit this a bit before signing you in. I'm sure your uncle would approve. Fresh start, eh? New beginnings. We just happen to have an
3: immediate opening in fuel purity. I'd hate to see you miss your chance.
0: It's clear by the tone of the interviewer that such aspirations are meaningless within the Imperial system, but the interviewer is happy to allow Cyril to entertain such fantasies if it means he gets another drone to work the floor of his bureau. By the end of the episode, Cyril has taken his place within its endless landscape of pods and data crunching. And without any explanation we see him wearing the standard issue gray suit that everyone else in the bureau wears. Either by choice or by compliance Cyril has conformed to the decrees of his superiors. Any expression of individuality in Cyril is stamped out by his need to be in the system. He does this because he feels he can make a difference but it's a delusion. This is what life is like on Coruscant under the empire small men yearning for greatness. It's a delusion the Empire allows them to have as long as they continue to be in service to the greater Imperial machine. Pershing, a scientist renowned for his groundbreaking work in the field of genetics, finds himself in the center of controversy after the end of the Galactic Civil War. Pershing, who had unwittingly contributed to the Empire's nefarious schemes, was put into the New Republic's amnesty program on Coruscant.
6: The amnesty program saved my life. There are many of us who had no choice in working for the Empire, but now the New Republic has given us a second chance. So thank you.
0: Despite his achievements in the scientific community, Pershing yearns for redemption, hoping to make amends for the harm his research has caused.
6: I believe the pursuit of knowledge is the most noble thing someone can do. Sadly, my research was twisted into something cruel and inhumane at the behest of a desperate individual intent on using cloning technology to secure more power for himself. But despite the shameful work of my past, I now hope to help the new republic in whatever way I can. Though that work is now behind me and I regret what I did, I assure you that my original intentions were good.
0: With a public appeal to the wealthy and influential citizens of Curaçao, Pershing seeks to shed his past and be remembered for the good he might do in the future. However, to his dismay, he's viewed more as a curiosity than a crusader, and he must navigate a society that is willing to forgive, but never let him forget.
3: Hello Doctor, but... it must be wonderful now that you work with a government that appreciates your contribution, no? Huh? Of course,
6: I'm very lucky. And we're lucky like to I have was...
3: you, Dr. Pershing.
5: How are you finding the city? Comfortable, I hope?
6: Yes, uh, though anything would be comfortable compared to the Outer Rim. <laughs> the Outer Rim, I can't imagine. You know, I was almost drafted. Imagine me serving.
3: Oh, darling, that was the Empire. Oh, my apologies. Empire, Rebels, New Republic, I can't keep track. That's why I should just keep my mouth shut. We try not to get involved.
5: Well, I think you deserve the very best, Doctor. After everything you've been through, you're just so brave.
3: i such an
5: inspiration. I'm so glad you're working for us now.
0: Thank you. Coruscant's elite are only interested in Pershing because he's the public figure du jour. They clearly have no alliances outside the sphere of privilege and relative comfort they occupy. So any redemption Pershing hopes to find here is merely surface level. Because it's not Coruscant's elite from which he should be seeking forgiveness, and those people do not live on Coruscant. But in the distant and poor enclaves of space like the Outer Rim, a region Pershing still finds a way to disparage, even after spending months in the Amnesty program. Have you been in Curacant long? No.
3: Well, I think you will find it a very lovely city. You must be sure to visit the Sky Dome Botanical Gardens. The mysis blossoms are in full bloom and oh my oh my are they something to see. Ah and if you have time, the Galactic Museum is. a wonderful on hyperdrive
0: technology. The Taxi Droid doubles as a Curacant travel agent, reminding Pershing of all the wonderful sights and attractions the planet has to offer. I've explored Coruscant in a previous Forever Star Wars episode, and noted that Coruscant is a place of many wonders and distractions. And this is in keeping with the theme established in the previous scene with the social elites. Those who live on Coruscant distract themselves with art and history and entertainment and excess. These pursuits allow them to ignore the rest of the galaxy, and what inequities or injustices exist there. We can see this in the Opera House, which made its first appearance in Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. During a calamari ballet, Anakin and Palpatine conspire to learn the secrets of immortality.
5: Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise?
0: Palpatine is brazen enough to conduct Sith business out in the open because of his utter confidence in the blindness of Coruscant's population. They're too easily distracted by spectacles like the ballet to give any consideration to how their democracy was being dissolved out from under them. And to be honest, they didn't seem to mind much. For only a few years later, those same people are attending an event in that same opera house where Pershing has captured the spotlight and given them something new to fawn over. They're not concerned with where he came from or even where he wants to go. They only see what he provides them in the moment and this newfound fame and notoriety. He's the shiny new object. As Pershing enters the Amnesty housing facility, he's met by a group of former Imperial officers who welcome him with open arms.
3: Amnesty
6: officer M34. Amnesty Scientist, L52.
0: The Amnesty Housing is a unique program that aims to provide a fresh start to those who were once on the wrong side of history. It's a place where former Imperials can learn to unlearn their old ways and embrace a new way of thinking. Initiates are assigned a designation and instructed to refer to themselves by this new identity only. This is a crucial step in their journey towards reintegration, as it ensures that they do not dwell on their past and instead focus on their future. The mood among the initiates is light and jovial. Clearly, these individuals feel fortunate to have been given a second chance, but underneath this lightness lurks something unsettling. By accepting their designations, these former officers are stripped of their identity, which is not unlike the uniformity the Empire demanded of them in their former lives. It is but the first of many hints that the New Republic is adopting tactics that are not becoming of a new government that's founded on the idea of bringing freedom and justice back to the galaxy.
2: Long live the New Republic. Long
0: live the New Republic. Long live the New Republic. Pershing recognizes a familiar face, Elia Kane. She served with him under Moff Gideon. She's an uncomfortable reminder of his past. But Kane appears to be further along in the program, so she becomes his guide and his mentor throughout his reintegration. She seems to have turned a corner, and it's a corner Pershing wants to turn.
6: I do think about that sometimes. All of my research going unfinished. we were close to making some incredible breakthroughs. In the right hands, our discoveries could have helped a lot of people. So why not continue your research here? I don't think it's something the New Republic would be interested in. The ethics of cloning are complicated. But if it could help the New Republic, isn't that important enough?
0: Her inference is that they should break the rules in order to help a short-sighted New Republic, because the ends will justify the means. Pershing is both intrigued and wary of Kane's words. But whatever Kane's agenda may be, she's planted a seed of nonconformity. The very thing that led Pershing to do terrible things in the service of the Empire is leading him down a similar path and his choice hangs over the scene and gives the scene a feeling of unease. This unease is enhanced by the celebratory feel of the setting. Pershing and Cain are visiting the site of the last remaining mountain on Coruscant. Umade is the name of the highest peak in the Ecumenopolis. The peak now just looks like a rock formation in the middle of the plaza a sad reminder of how the mountain long ago was absorbed into the fabric of the city. Urban sprawl has literally consumed all of the planet's natural resources. This is in contrast to the almost circus-like atmosphere of the plaza, with its confectionery delights, magicians, vendors, and cartoonish music soundtrack playing overhead. I watched the scene with a sense of growing dread. All of this felt wrong. It was off somehow. And with the introduction of Umate, the scene presents a reminder that Coruscant is a place that devours all things natural and replaces them with artificiality. The scene in which Pershing attends a session with a droid counselor is a poignant example of the dark side of the amnesty program.
7: Do you still find your current housing situation comfortable? Yes. Are you able to maintain a consistent schedule? Yes. Are you experiencing any undue stress due to work or personal matters? No. Have you experienced any feelings of anger or resentment towards your coworkers? No. Have you experienced any feelings of anger or resentment towards the New Republic government or its representatives? No. Thank you for continuing. Can I ask a question? Proceed.
6: If I were to pursue my own research, recreationally, would that be allowed?
7: According to your file, your previous research involved cloning and genetic engineering. That class of research is expressly prohibited by the Coruscant Accords, section 13, subparagraph seven. My apologies. Do you have any further questions? I guess not. Thank you for continuing to be an important part of the amnesty program. Have a nice
0: day. The fact that this counselor is a droid highlights the impersonal nature of the program and suggests that the initiates are seen less as people and more as machines that need to be fixed. The use of designations instead of names further reinforces this idea, as it implies that the initiates are being stripped of their individuality and shaped into predetermined molds. Pershing's quiet compliance during the counseling session is telling. As it suggests that he's resigned himself to the fact that he's just another cog in a different kind of machine. However, when he asks if he can continue his cloning research, it becomes clear that he's still looking for a glimmer of empathy from the New Republic. Unfortunately, his fate is tied to the bureaucracy of an automaton, and he's left to wonder if he'll ever truly be seen as a person again. This scene highlights the themes of dehumanization and the dangers of blindly following the rules and regulations, and it sets a tone of unease that permeates the entire amnesty program. It sets up a running theme of a new republic that's making many of the same mistakes as the old republic, which led to the empire. This is not what I expected to find on a liberated Coruscant after the Rebel Alliance victory, and it raises many questions about the nature of power and the inherent corruption that befalls new regimes that rely heavily on the infrastructures of the previous regime. These are cycles that permeate the culture of Coruscant society, and they serve as a stark reminder that even the most noble of ideals can be forsaken when newfound power is attained.
3: Morning, L-52. Everything okay? Yes. Thank you.
0: But this, uh...
6: Equipment I'm archiving, it's all coded to be destroyed. Looks like it. But it's all still perfectly good. It's Imperial technology. Yes, but they can still be put to good use. Uh, If I can have access to the equipment, I'd be happy to demonstrate how. Can I be
3: honest with you? We are really behind here. Not only do we have the Imperial Disposal Yards to inventory, but we're still decommissioning the Alliance fleet. I'm sure you understand. I just think I could be helpful if I could- It would require authorization from the department.
4: You could submit a C1023
6: request,
3: but I've never seen someone from the Amnesty Program make one of those. I'd have to check if that's even possible.
6: It's fine. Forget I asked.
3: I'm sorry, L-5-2. I know it's not easy, but... I assure you, this is truly helping the New Republic.
0: I was struck by the similarities between Pershing's day job and Cyril Karn's position at the Bureau of Standards. I'm not sure how much creative overlap there was between Andor and The Mandalorian, but it seemed more than just a coincidence that both featured a soulless gray working environment full of cubicles where the central character is struggling to make a difference in the vast bureaucratic system that employs them. Pershing's job is giving all kinds of nods to Office Space, the 1999 comedy about corporate America.
2: Um,
3: I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if
0: you could be here around nine, that would be great. Okay. All through this episode, Pershing is being coaxed towards breaking the rules by the gentle prodding of Cain, and she appeals to his conscience and to his own desire to carry on with his research, which he sees as valuable in and of itself, and probably an extension of himself. It's this pride mixed with hubris that led Pershing down the slippery slope that the empire exploited, but he's not deprogrammed enough by the amnesty program to realize it just yet.
7: Have you experienced any feelings of anger or resentment towards the New Republic government or its representatives? Apologies if you didn't hear me. Have you experienced any feelings of anger or resentment? No. Thank you for continuing to be- Our
6: main objective is to help the Republic, right? Correct. And that supersedes everything else?
7: It does. Thank you for continuing to be an important part of the amnesty program. Have a nice
0: day. Pershing reaches a point where his confirmation bias gets the better of him. He's found a way to rationalize a violation of the rules as long as it serves the greater good, which is almost exactly what all ex-imperials say about their deeds under the empire. They were just trying to do good. This tug-of-war within his conscience is an interesting dynamic to watch play out, especially given that The Mandalorian is largely an action-adventure series, and Pershing has been, to this point, a side character. This makes this episode a curiosity in the larger tapestry of the show's stories, as it explores more of the psychological underpinnings of life after the Empire. As the episode soon reveals, there is more going on in the amnesty program than meets the eye. Pershing eventually succumbs to his desire and agrees to accompany Kane as she sneaks him into the Imperial shipyards to board a derelict star destroyer and steal some of his former equipment to create a mobile lab. Upon entering the lab, where he once worked, Pershing is exhilarated. Instead of guilt or remorse, he feels jubilation as exciting memories of scientific discovery fill his mind.
6: I remember the first time I was in a place like this. I couldn't believe I'd made it. My mother was a doctor in the town where I grew up. I would spend days in her office dreaming of a lab like this. But to actually be in one... <laughs> you always knew what you wanted to do. As far back as I can remember. What about you? What did you want to be when you grew up?
0: What happens visually on screen in this moment is subtle but effective. At the moment that Pershing asked Kane to share some of her story, she takes one step back out of the light and into the shadow before she answers. This is a foreshadowing, quite literally, of what is about to transpire as Kane's agenda becomes known. Pershing has all but lost himself in this drive to regain control over his research, and he's not seeing what's right in front of his eyes. His zeal has made him blind to the dangers of entering the Star Destroyer and returning to the role he once occupied, which caused the suffering of so many people. All he can think about is how much he felt at home here. In spite of his desire to clear his name and right his wrongs, he's falling right back into that trap that led him astray to begin with. And Kane is setting him up for an altogether different kind of trap still to come.
6: I didn't really have a chance to think about it.
0: What was that? The pair quickly make their way out of the lab, only to find that the ship has been boarded by New Republic security. As they flee the destroyer, they're surrounded, and Pershing realizes that he's been played, as Kane takes his lab equipment and joins the New Republic officers. This entire adventure has been a test, and Pershing failed it miserably.
5: Uh, wait, uh, this is a mind flayer. This is a 602 mitigator. It's a non-invasive experimental treatment recently approved for rehabilitation. No, it's a mind flayer! It's a similar device, but we found at low voltages it can be used to help soothe select traumatic memories. You'll see some pleasant colors, Uh, hear a light buzzing, and experience a great sense of relief in no time at all. You're gonna wipe my mind! Absolutely not. This isn't the Empire, son. This device is used to heal. I've been through the treatment myself, in fact, and I found the experience quite refreshing. Please, just let me explain. I was just trying to help. This will only take a moment. I'll be here when you wake up. You don't understand. She brought me there. It was a trap!
0: Mind Flayers are torture devices employed by the Empire to wipe the minds of dissidents. The New Republic has christened it by a harmless-sounding name, but it's no less a weapon of torture. The New Republic has found a way to rationalize its use by turning its power level down, adding some soothing music, and calling it therapy. But this is merely window dressing. Rather than eliminate the tools of oppression, the New Republic has chosen to retain them and simply rebrand them to make their use more benign, more palatable. But in much the same way that Pershing tried to rationalize his desire to continue his research, the New Republic is justifying its use of Imperial tactics under the guise of doing good. There are many such parallels on display here, and all of them are unsettling. Left alone in the room with the machine control panel, Kane slowly turns the power level up to maximum, obliterating all of Pershing's memories. These final moments reveal that Eliah Kane was not only a spy for the New Republic, but a double agent for Moff Gideon. Pershing's failure is complete. His mind is wiped of all knowledge, all research. His work will never benefit the New Republic, but he may also lose everything that makes him Dr. Pershing. The intellectual curiosity, the mistakes of his past, the desire to better himself, the newfound celebrity as a high-profile initiate of the Amnesty program. All of these things simply disappear with a turn of a dial as Kane watches, emotionless. Pershing's story ends and is quickly forgotten in this vast cityscape of hopes, dreams, and fears. Coruscant has claimed another soul a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. May the 4th. Well, this may not be the happiest of topics to end on in Star Wars, but I've been fascinated with Coruscant. Next to Naboo, it's one of my favorite planets. I've noticed that a lot of storytelling in recent Star Wars has included Coruscant, and as a fan of the prequels, it makes me happy to visit it again, although in some deeply troubling stories by showing the world's dark side. I like when Star Wars doesn't shy away from showing the darker side of the mythos. The moral complexity that exists in stories that don't involve Jedi and Sith are where Star Wars gets complex and fascinating. Not everything is as cut and dried as the simplistic conflicts introduced by the original trilogy. When I watched the Amnesty Program episode of The Mandalorian, I realized that we were being shown something interesting about the New Republic. They were making a statement about how easily corrupted people can be when they regain power, no matter how noble their intentions might be. It reminds me of another franchise, The Lord of the Rings, where Gandalf tells Frodo that he himself cannot accept the ring from Frodo because its power would corrupt him and cause him to commit evil from a desire to do good. When the Empire fell, there was a power vacuum and the New Republic stepped in to fill the space. But the Empire's reach was vast and the new leaders chose to keep some of its infrastructure in place rebranding it as innocuous because it was now controlled by the good guys. But the moral of the story here is that villains almost never think of themselves as villains. They see themselves as heroes in their own story. And even people with truly good intentions will find ways to rationalize questionable choices and their own actions if they align with good intentions. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... It's just we're putting new cover sheets on all the TPS
5: reports before they go out now, so if you could go ahead and try to remember to do that from now
3: on, that'd be great.